0: welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal. We got a very special episode, I'm a special guest, my dear friend Scott Borden. He is a longtime contributor to the Climbing Zine, perhaps the most prolific. He contributed to volume two and ever since then he's been writing stories for us, very kind of different stories. He's written a story about his dog Rasta, his late dog Rasta, who was a kind of our (laughs) friend dog in college. He's written about Born to Climb, about the um, ancestral links we have to climbing, being a tree-dwelling species. And he's the most passionate, one of the most passionate people I've ever met in my entire life. Our friendship has been going on for 20 years, and I really, really, really enjoy this conversation. Scott's now the director of the Outdoor Industry MBA at Western Colorado University in Gunnison, Colorado the first of its kind in the country. That's both of our alma mater as well. And I really enjoyed having this conversation with Scott and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Scott is also the author of our climbing children's book called Squeak Goes Climbing in Yosemite National Park. And we just had a really fun conversation. We are still ongoing with our Keep the Zine Alive campaign. We've added 245 new subscribers in the last couple months. That means we still have about 755 to go to meet our goal of $1,000. Um, we are also working on our Patreon. Uh, I think we're up to about $165 on that. And we're trying to get to 1000 just to make this thing sustainable and um, to make us be able to keep creating art for you. This episode is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, progressive app, and animated functions with climbs for all abilities. It also has two layouts to choose from with large online communities for each. There are over 50,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 4,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos, and even add your own. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help get you a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Osprey Packs. Osprey and the climbing zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative high performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home in the Four Corners region of southwest Colorado. And the infinite outdoor opportunities that exist here. For more information, check out osprey.com.
1: Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware, space is Adelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com.
0: All right, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Scott Borden. I am sitting here with my longtime and dear friend, um, Dr. Scott Borden, also a longtime zine contributor. Scott, how you doing? I'm great, Luke. Thanks for having me. Um, thank you. And I, I know we're going to have a good time with this interview. Um, we're already laughing before the mics are, are turned on. And we're in a place that is like almost literally uh, hundreds of feet where we had our first infamous exchange. Um why don't you start us off by, by telling us this story and for a little bit of context, I'm a couple of years older than you. Um, you've now surpassed me in adulthood cause you have, um, children and a wife and <laughs> a serious job. So, um, uh, but why don't you tell us this story when you're, you're probably what, 19 and I'm 21 or something.
2: I might've been 17. Honestly, <laughs> Dang. I had just moved to Gunnison <laughs> from uh Philadelphia area. I was pretty green. You know, I had, uh, I had a lot to learn, and there was this guy, Luke Mihal, in the library. <clears throat> he was a legend. He could climb hard cracks. He could put up new routes. He was bolting new things, and I wanted to get to know that guy. So I saw him across the library, and uh, I cornered him. And uh, he looked a little bit intimidated. I think he uh, he needed some space. I was maybe getting a little too close, a little a little too soon, you know, too soon poetry style, and said, uh,
0: Luke. You live out at Hartman's, is that right? Luke's like yeah. at the time, yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> at the time I was living at Hartman's. That was really like my computer time, where I like checked in with the world, you know. Yeah, yeah.
2: Li- living out on BLM land, and uh, and I said, Luke, I want to be a dirtbag too. Like teach me the ways, sensei. And uh, Luke, Luke delivered. I was able to live out at Hartman's as well, <laughs> live the dream, uh, climb all the time, and and bike, and you know have the same lifestyle. So uh, thanks, Luke, for helping me be a dirtbag.
0: My pleasure, my pleasure um and something I noticed about you right away I don't really remember being taken aback um by you at all. Maybe it was just your energy, <laughs> like you coming up to me, but I was honored um because I felt like in that time period, and you know I've been here at Western, like talking in classes and and gave a presentation for the zine, um recapping our our ten year anniversary two years late um but the main thing, I was honored because I felt like at that time I finally had something to offer people. You know, I feel like in our late teenage, early 20 years, we're a lot of, in a lot of ways searching for purpose. And I had bounced around from other schools and, and ended up at Western and took that semester off so I could get in-state tuition. <laughs> because I was, I was uh, still playing out-of-state. And I decided to go live in a tent at Hartman's uh, for like four months, which technically probably wasn't legal but <laughs> you know um back then it was it was uh much easier i think to do that and there was less people um camping on public lands but i was honored that you had had come up to me and it made me feel like after a, a couple years of being here i had something to offer people in that sense and with you i just remember your passion when you were you and mark Grunded i i put you two in um a similar category because you guys were like best, best friends and and both really passionate about the environment, but you especially were almost like over the top passionate about the environment. And I've never really asked you, what is the source of that? Like how does, and, and I think activism is more popular and in, in, I don't want to say, I guess I could say trendy now. I think it's like cool to be an activist, but I don't feel like in the early 2000s, it was actually cool or anything like that. But what, like, where did that passion come from as a kid out of Philadelphia?
2: Yeah. So they, they called me angry vegetarian here. I was very passionate and, um, I still am, you know, uh, my passions are just directed in a different way, but, um, you know, when you're young and you're angry and you want change immediately, it comes out in different ways than maybe it does now in my life. I think that You know, a big part of that was growing up in an area that was rapidly being developed and a a suburb of Philadelphia that is very beautiful and, and seeing areas that, that I loved just becoming condos and becoming houses and having a connection to that land and seeing it change so rapidly, uh, made me upset, made me really angry. And so I brought that anger with me to Colorado. I think East coast anger is a different, different form than West (laughs) coast anger (laughs) perhaps. Um, and, and, uh, fortunately, Colorado, California, you know, international travels helped smooth me out a little bit, um, on, on how I express that anger. Um, but I'm, I'm still, I'm still angry. And I think if you're not angry, then maybe yeah. people aren't paying attention to what's going on out there.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Cause I, I literally have never asked you what the source of that was. And you, did you get into climbing in, in Philly or did you get in, into climbing out here?
2: Yeah, a little bit in Philly. You know, my, um, I used to go to uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, and, and climb out there, and I uh, met this guy that lived in his van, and I wanted to be him so bad. You know, <laughs> I just thought that was the coolest thing ever, climbing on otter cliffs out there with the ocean splashing underneath
0: us. And Shout out to otter cliffs. Never heard of that. Uh, <laughs> I'm beautiful. sure somebody listening is like, Guaranteed. otter cliffs! <laughs> yeah, beautiful. <laughs> that's um, in Philadelphia, or where'd you say that was? That's in Maine. In Maine, yeah, okay, cool. In Maine and, is um, that by Ar- Arcadia? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. It's that yeah. area. yeah. yeah.
2: And uh you know, climbing in gyms, obviously in philly and uh in the surrounding area, but it wasn't until I got here. I was in an outdoor dorm uh here at Western, I got randomly placed with who is still my best friend, um, and we set off to, Mark Rundin. yeah, we set off to rock climb together and and become yeah not to become not dead. I think was <laughs> was our goal uh in the early days. you know we we had like five pieces of gear. And uh, we would rock, paper, scissors for who, ha- who had to lead. And we would both hope that we lost.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Mark is now um, the longest standing guide in uh, Yosemite, right? For the uh, whatever the, the guiding company is in Yosemite. Yeah, the mountaineer shop. Yeah, he's
2: uh, he also owns Pochero Chico Guides down in Mexico. And he's he's made a real life of it. You know, he's, uh, he's an inspiring guy. Still wants to get out. Still wants to get first ascents still developing areas he's uh you know he's still full-blown
0: yeah and um memories are flashing back memories I feel like after I don't know if you feel like this but like like you were telling a story the other night that I didn't remember like hardly any of the details and then I feel like this is happening to me over and over now that I've got 20 years of climbing experiences like your friends have to remind you of what happened um, because we have so many experiences I don't even think it's you know A bad memory or anything like that. I just think when you've had so many life experiences, your friends have to almost remind you of what happened. So it almost makes our friendship even more special. I mean, all of my best friends, almost entirely, not maybe 90%, I met in those first two years here in Gunnison and uh, including Mark Grundon. But I'm really thinking about, I mean, Mark's, Mark's life at that point was insane. Like you guys got caught in an avalanche right on um in in climbing outside of silverton is that correct yeah we yeah.
2: did yeah that was a uh multi-pitch route that we were on the second pitch and uh i had lost rock paper scissors for the first lead actually i i guess i i won so i had won the first uh round of rock paper scissors and led the first pitch and we got to the what second. climb were you on um, we weren't on Stairway to Heaven. We were on something else across like the way. A I can't gully, remember.
0: some sort of gully or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that.
2: Yeah. And we um, got to the second pitch, set up an anchor, and we had a third, and he came up, and uh, he he actually clipped some, or, or he put, what happened was there was, a, there was a fixed anchor, and he put in another screw and said, you know, why not? Like, you know, randomly clipped it to the anchor. Wasn't even weighted. Certainly wasn't equalized. Uh, the anchor that was there was. And uh, he started up the second pitch. Down comes this av- avalanche, and uh, he fell about 150 feet down to the ground. Um, it uh, it ripped out a pin, it bent another one to the point where the cordelette that was there broke, and that backup ice screw saved both Mark and I. Uh, otherwise, we would have pitched off 100 feet as well.
0: I forgot about that part of the story, and that was that was intense in in a lot of a lot of levels. Was there something about avalanches that you should have known that you didn't at the time?
2: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We should have checked the avalanche report. Mm-hmm. Um, there were other climbers headed up there afterwards, but things were ripping left and right that day. And, yeah, got to check that avalanche report. You know, that that's just young blood being arrogant and going for it.
0: Overstoking maybe a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were – that was like a – a great a near miss that that nobody passed i mean steve the climber who fell made a you know recovery and um that was just a good lesson i think for everybody and then mark you know got diagnosed with cancer i think a week after that or something crazy and and so i feel like that was very formative because i think i was near the end of my college career and we are maybe a little bit competitive with each other and then i feel like that incident just kind of solidified us as being like a family of of climbers and I feel like we've kind of been like that ever since. Um
2: absolutely and yeah. the fact that the community rallied around Mark to help drive him to yeah. Grand Junction, uh-huh. know, which is two and a half hours away yeah uh, for treatment, you know, that that really solidified us as a family, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll interview Mark someday and, and this is in the Mark Grendon story which has been published as a podcast and, and been published um, on the zine website. But Mark would go to do his radiation treatment, in Grand Junction, about two and a half, three hours away. And then he would like make people climb on the way back. <laughs> like, so oh. he would get radiation treatment. And then we go to Escalante Canyon, and he climbed some pitches and like most of the time he was climbing harder than anyone he was climbing with. Oh
2: gosh. I, he, one time I went and climbed Medicine Man with him, which who climbs Medicine Man when they're on chemo? Mike. Well,
0: this was right after his chemo, right? It after was, he, he did was, radiation, that he had was, to finish his chemo.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was right before he had to go in for a treatment. He sent the crux pitch on that thing. I couldn't, I couldn't climb the crux pitch on the
0: thing. Yeah, which is uh, if anyone hasn't been on that route, it's like sustained steep number ones, like three or three pitches off the deck. Yeah, it was amazing.
2: Yeah. And uh, he gets to the top, and he just he's crying, and he yells yeah. out, "Fuck you, cancer!" Yeah, and uh, that that moment will live with me forever. That was an amazing moment
0: yeah yeah um making me miss mark Grundin right now <laughs> i wish he was here right now such a character but you two yeah you guys were just like it was almost like fate you know like whatever you want to call fate but you two were just put together in a way that it seems like it was driven by like a higher power or something and what do we we jokingly called you guys uh, heterosexual life partners <laughs> yeah we actually put up a route called that <laughs> nice. yeah and so you you kinda got into first ascents, right? Like when you were was that would you get in that when you were kinda in college? Did you put up some roots and
2: Yeah, a couple here in Gunny. Yeah. a um, couple over in California. But yeah, it was um it was a fun time, you know, exploring new things and there was a lot of rocks still out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Gunnison is just a very kind of trad based area too. So I feel like we all you know, i I've, I've really gravitated towards sport climbing and safe crack climbing as I've gotten older, but in this era, it was like you cut your teeth. You know, a youngster asked me, he's like, I want to climb in the Black Canyon. And he's like, what should I do? And I was like, well, spend every day at Taylor Canyon and, you know, get up to the 510 in Taylor Canyon and then go to the Black, you know? That's great advice. But we just, it, I feel like every area lends itself to a certain climbing experience. And ours was just, it just put us on the trajectory of climbing big walls. Yeah. And coincidentally enough, you you kind of traveled the world a bit, right? You You saw, I mean... I feel like you really went deep in, in just seeing the world um, after you graduated. Yeah. Any any reflections on some some particular moving trips that you took? I know you went to Africa. Um, I know you, yeah, you've s- just seen a lot of the realities of the world and your travels. But anything in that time period after graduation, before you ended up in Yosemite, that was particularly impactful for you. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think anytime you get to see the world and um, see how other people live, you get to see their culture, um, you get to see your privilege. I think those are really important times um, to reflect and and grow. And, you know, Argentina, Mexico, Thailand, Canada. I could I could keep going. But, you know, it's um, those are places that are amazing spots to climb and and also grow. And I think, you know, for me that was uh that was what I needed at that time. Mm-hmm. Um and, and it helped me to get to where I am today. So, you know, I, I would recommend to any young person go travel, go climb. Um it's an amazing way to meet people. Um it's an avenue that you instantly have a connection with someone. You're gonna trust your life to them and they're gonna trust their life to you. And uh you're gonna you're gonna make lifelong friends. Mm-hmm. So go do it. Go go build
0: some community out there. Yeah. As so I was telling when I was speaking in these classes, um, it was like, you're, you're 20, you're never going to have more freedom than you have in your twenties. Stereotypically, you know, if, especially if you're on the path of you're, you're going to college and then you're graduating and then you feel this, you know, you don't know what to do, but I feel like I, I would encourage anyone to do that. Like travel the world, stay out climbing, live out of your vehicle kind of thing, like in your, in your twenties. Cause the opportunities kind of dwindle <laughs> from that. We've had a few friends, I think, that have worked through their 20s and then became, like, Timmy Folks was, like, an ice climbing dirtbag in his, like, late 30s after working for most of his 20s and early 30s, which is cool to see that. But um, most people don't really, like, g- find dirtbagging in, like, their late 30s or something. You know, you kind of get into it in your 20s. Um, so how did you end up in Yosemite? Because you and Mark actually coincidentally, like, you didn't plan to move to Yosemite together, but you kind of moved there at the same time, right?
2: Yeah, I was <laughs> I was traveling in uh, East Africa, and I was in um, Zanzibar at the time. Really bad bouldering. Don't recommend it. Very sharp. And uh, <laughs> he, um, he was encouraging me to move to Yosemite, and so I was looking for jobs, and um, there was two that I was looking at. One was uh, somewhere else in California. The other one was in Yosemite, and uh, I said, well, you know, I'm thinking maybe I just become a surfer. You know, the other one was like, on the coast. And he was like, you're not a surfer, dude. What are you talking about? You've moved to the Mecca. Yeah. Why Why are you even talking about this? It's, <laughs> it's the easiest decision you've ever made. And, uh, and he was right. So yeah, that, that's how I got to Yosemite was through a job uh, working for an amazing nonprofit called Nature Bridge. I um, was a mentor teacher there. So inspiring other teachers to uh, work with over uh, 20,000 students a year that come through there to take care of the park and to love the the natural environment.
0: And you two moving to Yosemite actually gave me some of my best life experiences because I feel like visiting Yosemite as a climber and staying in camp four is, is one thing, but like staying with your friends in El Portel or the greenhouse, which is my favorite. If I had to pick a favorite house in the world, it would be the greenhouse, yeah, and, and it's, it's a very modest. It, like, it doesn't even have. Did it have electricity, but not running water?
2: Electricity. <laughs> the, the running water you can't drink. Yeah, uh, yeah. You could use it for washing up. Yeah. Brush your teeth if you're feeling adventurous and <laughs> <Getting> spicy. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, you know, the greenhouse has a a really important part for my family. We, uh, my wife and I, got married there. Right. Yeah. And um, it's uh yeah, it's it's a historical site that has an orchard on it. Um, it's on Big Meadow. El Cap is in the background.
0: Yeah, if you kind of hike just to the right spot, you can see El Cap just peeking up. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah.
2: it's an amazing spot. And yeah, Yosemite days were, were amazing. And, you know, I think one of the best things about it, obviously, you know, you got a career, you got a office in the valley, you've got flexibility so you can climb a lot. Uh, those things are great. But even better is your best friends coming to visit you and wanting to mm-hmm. visit you. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was the, you know, that was the thing that made me so happy about living there.
0: Yeah. And and they truly provided. I just remember like, yeah, some days like climbing the classics like Astro man or Rostrum and then not having to go back to the dredges of camp four and fighting to go to the bathroom when there's like two bathrooms for 300 people. I don't know if it's different now. It's probably about the same, but going back to your friend's house and like you guys had a makeshift little tiny hot tub. And there was a, at one point a trampoline that I used to sleep on and, Gosh, the, just that. We had a
2: ping pong table at one point
0: out there. Yeah, the ping pong. Oh, we the, should go play some meadow. ping pong later. <laughs> it was I saw there'd ping be, pong
2: yesterday. It'd <laughs> be owls like surrounding you as you're playing pong. Wow. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, but just like, it, I, I feel like that solidified my, you know, we were developing our values as college students. But it was like, you know what? I would rather stay at this greenhouse than Oprah's Mansion in Telluride oh, or yeah. something. And I feel like that really as I'm thinking about it, just shaped my values of, you know, fuck all this excess in the world and fuck all this materialism and really the greatest experiences of your life are, are what are the most important thing. If you know, and it it was for me and it's just like, I feel like that Yosemite era when you guys lived there is just encapsulated as like just one of the most beautiful times that I experienced. And it was because you and Mark were there, you know, and you uh, So this era is also, you know, it was an era where climbing areas weren't quite as busy as they are now. I feel like climbing has exploded, especially in the last five years. And I, I think it's actually good in a, in a lot of ways. It's definitely p- created challenges for land managers. But I think, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like the energy of climbing is the world actually needs more of it. Because climbing is kind of like a remedy to a lot of the ills of society um, but you were in an era where like certain legends were there and you would see them and these people aren't around anymore I'm thinking about like Dean Potter and uh, Sean Leary um, Stanley they called him and I'm guessing you you know you've, you've written you've done some writing about how you used to get passed by those guys or whatever but you were in that era of when some some legends were, there and and doing like pretty remarkable things like what was it like to be kind of like a a fly on the wall when when these legends are just in your midst you know
2: it it was humbling i think you realize really quickly that you're just mortal (laughs) and uh it it helps to erase the ego i think because you know i I think about a time when uh, potter came to a halloween party of ours and he had on his wingsuit and that was his costume, uh-huh. you know, and, and I shook his hand and I thought, good Lord, your hands are large. <laughs> and uh, he he was an angry vegan. <laughs> uh, yeah, amazingly, that's for it, sure, yeah. yeah, so yeah. he and I actually connected well on that um, because, you know, as I was being called the angry vegetarian. Yeah, um, he felt,
0: I felt like he was kind of easy to talk to. Like he was approachable and like a lot of famous climbers aren't approachable, but I've always felt... When I met Dean Potter, he was approachable. Yeah, he wanted yeah. to talk to
2: people. Yeah, he even though really if, even
0: if you fanboyed out, which I would always fanboy out when I saw Dean
2: Potter. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, and and he yeah he did have some some dark times in his life, yeah. especially up there in uh, Foresta. Um, but yeah, really inspiring to be around him and and around a bunch of those folks that just uh, were bringing their A game every single every single time they touched the rock. Um, yeah, getting passed by Honold three times in a day, uh, that'll, hum- that'll humble you, you know, and, and that happened. <laughs> oh, to when he maybe. climbed
0: El Cap three times in a day or and, something. And or? One yeah. day with, yeah.
2: with Stanley and then Stanley, uh, jumped off, you know, Jeez. I mean, why, why not? <laughs> you're going to climb El Cap three times in a day. Why not? Also base jump. Um, and you know, you're struggling to like get three pitches in, in the day. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, some good humble juice there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And do you also feel like that was, um. Sean and I were talking about this morning over a breakfast um, that the relationships between climbers and like land managers kind of shifted in that era. And I'm guessing it was really with the facelift and Ken. Uh, is it Ken Yeager? Ken Yeager. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I feel like him. when I first started going to Yosemite in the early 2000s, the law enforcement were really up in your face and climbers weren't treated with respect, maybe for good reason, because we weren't giving back. But maybe it was just that game of, like, cops and robbers or whatever. But I I just felt like when we, in the early 2000s, I didn't feel respected as a climber there. But then I, I feel like as the facelift started, and you were probably there for some of the first facelifts, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Nature uh. Bridge, the, the organization I was working with, had a part in it as well, which was really nice. Um, Ken is actually married to uh, someone that works at Nature Bridge. And um, so we had we had a big part in it, which was neat. Um, getting all the kids out there, collecting trash, taking care of the park. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like there there was a shift to let's be part of the solution here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kudos to the park service as well. They they hired uh, uh, climbing rangers. And those climbing rangers, you know, did, did very well by our community to represent us while also walking the line of law enforcement. So uh, a lot of people, I think, deserve some kudos for that
0: yeah and I, th- I just think that's very important too in in our history as climbers because um i've been sh- seeing that shift now out at indian creek um like our friend tim folks changes every conversation to ice climbing I, I often pivot to indian creek but i feel like when there is a direct like there's just a lot of stewardship there now um and cleaning up yosemite when um you know at the end of the day the government is what regulates these areas. And when they see uh, a huge, huge positive, um, like giving back, uh, from climbers, I feel like that actually means something. And then it like sol- solidifies the relationship, but then it makes climbers look good as stewards and not just like these kind of cowboys that kind of do whatever they want. And I feel like that's been a very important shift for our community. Um, and it goes in with environmentalism and everything else. But I feel like, you know, if you're you're a young climber and, and you want to kind of give back, there's so many more opportunities now than there were 20 years ago. It had to happen, too, because if we all, you know, there's just so many more more of us now that this change had to happen or some regulations were going to not be great for us. So Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, and of course, a huge shout-out
2: to Access Fund, obviously, yeah. who's doing a ton of that work and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Can't get enough of our support because they need it, and they're doing good work out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Any other particular uh, fond memories of Yosemite uh, that you have? Like, I know we we had some interesting experiences together.
2: Bailed off (laughs) some walls, maybe,
0: together. Yeah, we bailed off the nose one time. That was a funny, funny thing. Like, Dave Marcinowski and I showed up in Yosemite, and we wanted to get on the nose, and it was like early November, but the the conditions were incredible, and then. Both you and Mark were like, Yeah, let's go do a party on the wall. And you guys were all dialed in your systems, and Dave and I were just figuring out our systems. And then, like, near the end of the night, it was still like like one in the morning. We we're still packing up our bags, and it just felt hectic. And Mark, like, pulled a carabiner out of the hall bag and busted his tooth. And then it was like, Oh, Mark's not going. You know, he, he's going to the out. dentist tomorrow. Mark yeah. Out. Uh, but we. Uh, I'm sure many people listening can relate to like having a lot of, I think we had two haul bags between the three of us and you were all dialed and Dave was kind of stoked. And I was like, I'm not ready. <laughs> so we bailed like four pitches off the nose or something. And, but before that we had uh, a really fun experience on stoners highway. Yeah. Yeah. A uh, team breakup. Yeah. We were team breakup. We had both broken up with our significant others. Um, mine actually left me in Yosemite. <laughs> It ha- happens, uh, buddy. It happens. Yeah, up. yeah. Well, it was like she gave me the option to either stay in Yosemite or, or do a drive back to Gunnison. I was like, I'm going to stay. But we did this route Stoner's Highway, which talk about humbling. I got to say, that's probably the best headspace I've ever had to get into for a climb, and it's 510. <laughs> yeah, it was... but it has like what 40, 50 foot runouts.
2: Yeah, it's a little spicy.
0: A little spicy, and and you seem to get the most. I don't know if it was just perception that it was like worse to watch somebody climbing than to be climbing. But I feel like for whatever, in, in looking, I was looking at volume two recently, I think it was the only volume where two different people wrote about the same climb and the same experience in a different way.
2: Yeah, that is interesting that, yeah. you know, you, you can have the same experience and yet reflect on it completely differently. And uh, for me, it was, it was about being upset and what you can do after your heart is broken. And for you, I think it was very different.
0: Well, There's a lot of stories about, I feel like back in the day, like people would be all distraught and then they would like go free soloing or something, you know, which I was never quite that type. I was more like, I was heartbroken too, but I was like looking for a solace and a headspace and this climb provided it. And it was like still, I don't even think we did the whole climb. I think we bailed it like pitch nine or pitch 10.
2: Yeah. Right at the very top. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Just like, after run out after run out, there was like one run out we weren't comfortable with. But like I feel like we went up on the wall that day and I felt like I came down with, with a clarity that I, I don't think I could have got in any other way other than like a sketchy <laughs> drag climb. It wasn't even sketchy. It was good rock. It was just run out. I don't even know who put up the stoners highway. Good, good question.
2: I don't know the answer to yeah. that. Um, but uh, a couple stoners for sure. Yeah. They, they forgot to uh, inform everyone that there's no gear.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the bolts were good. I think the bolts were replaced by ASCA, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The Shout out to Um uh, which started in Yosemite, I believe, right, with uh, Chris McNamara? Yep. American Safe Climbing Association, another group I kind of work with a lot. You moved to Yosemite. I mean, you became a really good climber. I was really impressed with your skills with uh, Big Wall, with Yosemite in general. I mean, I got to imagine those are some of your fondest climbing memories of like living there and just... You really got in sync. I remember one day we were, after the nose bail, we decided to do Washington Column, which is where we should have started in the first place. And we were like doing a two-day approach on it. And you climbed a route right next to a I think called Southern Man. I don't remember who your partner was, but you guys just flew past us. <laughs> and it was pretty amazing to watch.
2: And you, you just crushed it. I did take to that kind of climbing right away because uh, you're pulling on gear a lot. You're kind of like changing it up between actual climbing and lethargic (laughs) aid climbing. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of cheating in a way. (laughs) And so I took to that pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is what it is, you know, I mean, like nose records are still set with that technique. So I don't, I was really impressed with where you arrived at with that style of climbing and you married, uh, Near your end, end, end of your time in Yosemite, you married your current wife, Taryn.
2: Yep, one of my best friends from Western, as well.
0: Yeah, and you actually um, wrote a story in the Zine about how your your old dog, Rasta, um, brought you two together. Well, that was probably in volume seven, I think. Um, some of these volumes are so out of print now that they're just hard to find. Um, but yeah. we're doing another zine book. Maybe we'll throw that story
2: in there. And that story is yeah. online. It is um, online. Yeah, yeah. And you know, one of the best uh, compliments I've received from any of my writing is your editor called me and told me it made her cry, hmm. um, out of out of joy, not out of uh, sadness, because wow. it is yeah. a it's a cute story.
0: Yeah, and let's just recap the story. You were kind of the only one in college that had a dog. <laughs> Yeah, that probably
2: wasn't a good idea.
0: Yeah. Well, what was, the guy was outside of City Market and like was doused in patchouli oil and like, yeah, was, was he was, like singing a song or something? He or?
2: was, yeah, it was this guy uh, who was hitchhiking through and he had dreadlocks and he was playing his guitar and he was singing, They won't let me sing my song. They won't let me smoke my ball. <laughs> and it was so bad that I, I immediately just said, Look, I'll take one of those puppies. And um, I was living out of my car half the time you know, when I wasn't in school and it was, it was warm enough here in Gunnison, I was living out in a tent and, uh, and out of the back of my truck and whatever, you know, it's like, that seems like a better fate for this poor dog than, yeah. <laughs> than hanging out here. Uh, so yeah, got, got this dog, um, with a now ex-girlfriend and, um, I went on a, uh, you know, like a study abroad or something and, Uh, needed to do something with the dog and I found my most reliable friend and it was uh, this this lady Taryn Mead and um, she you know accepted the dog and took him in and loved on him and when I got back she was like look this dog is obsessed with you you gotta take this dog back and I was like okay you know I'll take him back and then we passed him back and forth for years And, um, he was living with her for a long time out in Montana and she, uh, had to go on a trip to Saudi Arabia of all places to do a talk on, um, her, her area of study. And she was a consultant and international one. And, uh, she said, look, Scott, I need you to take back this dog. And I said, well, why don't you come out to Yosemite and we can hand off the dog. You can see Yosemite and I'll be your tour guide. And, um, within, you know, a day I was, uh, I was trying to put the moves on her, for sure. I took her down to um, the Tuolumne Grove, and there's this this wonderful place where the sequoia trees touch each other. It's called Kissing Couple, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where we had our first kiss, and um, we got married shortly thereafter. We, we lived in Yosemite together, and uh, Rasta was in the wedding. He, he was the uh, ring bearer. He barked when everyone clapped, and uh-huh. it was really cute, and he would eventually come to England with us, so we did... Uh, eventually leave Yosemite um, and uh, moved to England, and he came with us.
0: During your time in Yosemite, you wrote a children's book called Squeak Goes Climbing in Yosemite National Park.
2: I did. I was actually, uh, I had a a fever one day, and um, I had just gotten off of um, Lost Arrow Spire and spent two nights on there, and I got down and I was sick, and um, I had this idea for a kid's book where a mouse... Got pulled up a haul bag and was the was the hero or heroine of the story, um, and so I, you know, with your encouragement, that thing came to fruition. It it was a, wor- a labor of love for many years.
0: Yeah, you. I think I'm like kind of annoying like that. If anyone ever tells me they're gonna write a book, I ask them about it every time I see them for the next ten years. You couldn't get this thing published. Yeah, I tried. and it was before the zine was really publishing that much. Yeah, we were just trying to crank the zine out. Yeah, yeah. I tried. It was actually, um, it was during 2008, 2009.
2: So there was a recession, and there was a couple of publishers that just defunct on on doing books. So that was part of the part of the um, struggle. There was a couple of um, uh, publications that do not allow for anthropocized animals, so they don't want animals that are like humans. Um,
0: it's tough in the realm of children's books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the struggle is real on children's books. So, so that was a very boring book.
2: And and then I, you know, when I moved, I just kind of forgot about it. I just kind of thought like, maybe maybe that'll happen someday. Um, and then I had a kid, and and you kept bugging me. You kept like putting it in my ear, like, look, this is a good idea. Let's do this. And um, and, you know, the story was somewhat compelling. It's, uh, it's about a female mouse that uh, gets pulled up El Capitan by accident, and she has to face her fears of climbing to save the day. And, uh, no, you know, a little bit of a spoiler alert, she does. <laughs> and uh, she happens to be grandma in the end as well. And, so there's, um, and, and that was really a contribution of the illustrator, Mallory Logan, who um, we co-created um, the part about female empowerment there. And about, uh, you know, that Squeak, in a in a very male-dominated sport, that Squeak could be a female and um, could be the one that, that gets the courage and makes sure that everyone gets up safely.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, shout out to Mallory, who's also the art director for the climbing zine um, based here in Gunnison. She's got her own small business as well. Um, and we've got Squeak out there into the world. I often feel like I wish I could move more copies, but they move. People appreciate them. I have a, a woman who just bought 10 of them from Chicago and uh, she's like a teacher and she gives them to all her friends who are having kids. That's so, so cute! Um, even and, though it's, it is a small enterprise, I think it means a lot to people and people, I think mostly a lot of people don't even know about it. So maybe people that are listening with kids um, can get exposed to it, but people love it. Like when we brought it to outdoor retailer, we would go in our meetings and that would be like the main subject of conversation. If we put it out there that people just loved the idea of the storyline and having a climbing children's book. I think we were the first real legit children's climbing book out there. Yeah, there might have been climbing children's book. Yeah, yeah, there
2: might have been some spinoffs from like, you know, other other things, but um, they were established big fish in in the children's world. And so they they weren't really written from a climber's perspective. They were written like, Mm -hmm. what if we spiced in this interesting sport that's kind of obscure and over there? Yeah, um, I so. just watched
0: Frozen last night with, with Sean and his daughter, and I was like, this climbing scene is not realistic. <laughs> have you seen that movie? Uh, yes, I have. I've, good movie, good I've movie. I've two little kids. Yeah, <laughs> of course you've seen it. I'm just so glad we brought that to fruition. Anyone who's listening who has the idea of doing something, and I think I, for me the big lesson of Squeak is it, it doesn't have to be this big thing. I mean, you probably could have eventually, if you could have hooked up with a larger publisher, got it to a wider audience, and maybe someday we will. I know you're expanding on the Squeak series as well. It's meant a lot to me that we could team up and and just get it out there into the world. You know, back to the conversation about how, you
2: know, I was an angry vegetarian in college. This was a place where I could share the message of uh, uh, natural history and stewardship. And so there's a strong message about, you know, what are the animals that live in Yosemite? How do we take care of it? a portion of proceeds go to the access fund which is obviously the environmental arm of uh, our community and and so those are things that i take pride in and and ways that i'm still you know living up to those those values of sustainability and of a better world through taking care of our natural resources
0: so you you transitioned from and you wrote about this in i guess it was volume 6 of the zine but you moved from yosemite arguably the best accessible big walls in the world to the UK.
2: Their country's old. Uh That's a long time. Uh, so yeah, I went from wearing a t-shirt and not worrying about the weather on big walls to, uh, sitting in pissing down rain. (laughs) It was terrible.
0: And I guess you guys moved there for, for Taryn to go to get her PhD, right? Yep. Yeah. And you later got your PhD there as well. Um, but yeah, it, it was, uh, very much like you're, you're married and, um, You're you're along on this adventure, and I love your stories though from there because if it may not be obvious to people that are listening, but I feel like you are one of the friendliest, most outgoing people that I know. You know, you struggled to find your place there. You you found some climbing gyms, but I want to start with just like socially, how it was different to be a climber and a human being in that environment, and you were in academia too. Um, But just how different was it there? with your usual outgoing self of, you know, you'll go up to a party and introduce yourself and get in a conversation right away. Your stories from there so far, I just wanna hear for the world, tell us about Scotty Borden in the UK, like getting to find your social circle and the differences.
2: Yeah, so in England, um, it's not common to go up to people and just introduce yourself. You know, there's a pecking order, you get introduced and uh, there's kind of like a social structure around that. And I remember my first job was the marketing director of an outdoor program. I guarantee they hired me because I was American and because I was outgoing and they thought that I could do marketing really well through, you know, what they were seeing, and what you're describing. And, and I remember the very first big meeting we had, I was going up to people and shaking their hands and my boss was running around behind me, frantically trying to introduce me to people. And toned me down. He was like, "Scott, please, please." And I was like, "This is this is what we do. You know, this is this is how we do, buddy. Um, we gotta we gotta meet people. We gotta like put on a, a good face and grow this outdoor effort. You know, here in this this beautiful city of Exeter. And uh, yeah, it was it was pretty funny to see. Just I was a fish out of water. I was not uh, I was not normal for them
0: at all. It seems like the climbing scene is quite a bit different too and you did some sea cliff climbing out there
2: so first of all you know the the climbing scene is very different I was in a climbing club which I can't imagine in the United States but the climbing clubs there they have historical rights to some uh, rental properties that are in beautiful places like next to climbing areas so there's a big perk to be in a, a climbing club also just you know as I was saying that that social piece is hard for them and so if you're in a club. You automatically have friends. You automatically have people that want to go climbing with you that, yeah, some of them might actually drop you and kill you, um, to be completely honest with you. It's, <laughs> some of them were, you know, pretty green, but it was also, you know, a place to find community, a place to find adventure and and see all these obscure places that otherwise I wouldn't have gone to and seen. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was a very different scene. Um, I think that's probably also why they drink so much is to get over that odd social aspect that they have. So I think our club was a drinking club with a climbing problem more than a climbing club. Uh, We would, you know, climb all day. Somebody would fall and hurt themselves of course, because the rock blew up or something. Then we go to the pub and get blackout drunk because that's what you did. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I had to learn very quickly that uh, first of all, it's all three, two beer. So that's nice. Um, But also that everyone's supposed to buy a round. And if you're not buying a round, then it's rude. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a college student at some of these points. I'm a, a PhD student and I don't have any money. So, you know, I had to learn very quickly that you had to bring your money with you to the, uh, to the climb because you're going to go to the pub
0: afterwards and have to buy a couple of rounds. Did you enjoy the sea cliff climbing? Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> I did. I, I mean,
0: you got some great photos. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like the photos look great. Yeah, you know,
2: reflecting back everything, it's type two fun, right? It's Mm -hmm. the type of fun where you actually lived and you have this amazing story and that's why you go get blackout drunk so that you forget it and you go do it again. You know, in the moment, it was really scary. I was a part of an effort to put up the longest climb in England, and and we did. Uh, It is a traverse across (laughs) uh, a sea cliff. (laughs) You're placing gear behind refrigerator-sized boulders and hoping that they don't come out I had several times when rock just blew up underneath me, and I fortunately caught onto some other rock as I was falling. Because um, you're you're headed into the ocean, it's not it's not warm down there. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that you're getting out of there very easily. Um, so we we were having fun, but also it was it was a lot of type two fun. Um, and this and I had kids while I was there as well, and that um, changed my perspective a little bit. I was more into the the climbing in a gym uh, for a little bit there as i you know figured out what it meant to be a dad and and have that responsibility um but yeah it was it was a different kind of fun for sure
0: it's a great transition again because you wrote an essay called bad climbing daddy which was uh i think that was in volume 11 and i think you captured really well like um you know i don't have kids but i've seen you know most of our friends at this point have kids most of my friends are climbers i have a couple token non-climber friends <laughs> It's to keep it, you know, yeah, you mix it up, you know? Up. Yeah. yeah. Diversity um, is good. Yeah. And uh, you rewrote in that essay just like how well, like the, the drive for climbing doesn't go away just because you have a kid. At least it doesn't, it doesn't seem to for any of our friends, but you have to be a responsible parent. How did that change your climbing of, you know, having your son Kai and then later Rai? So, so as I wrote in that
2: article and I actually wrote that article from South Africa where we brought. Kai as a one-year-old, and we were climbing in uh, Rocklands, an amazing area, just you know, boulders further than you can see. And I was reflecting on, you know, what it means to give up your project for the day, what it means to change your plans, what it means to have lower expectations of a day, and um, it's it's hard, you know. There's no doubt about it. Like being a parent isn't easy. Uh, but it's also very rewarding and especially as they get older and they start to share the love of the sport, it's it's even better I think than than when I was fancy foot and free. Uh-huh. Um, I love climbing with my kids. I love skiing with my kids. it's uh, it's really fun and yeah, I still need time to myself and fortunately, my partner and I can you know really be open and transparent and transactional in some ways about that time. Yeah. Um, because you got to have your own time, but, uh, the time with your kids is, is amazing. You know, there's, it's a high that I didn't know existed before I had it.
0: Kai was actually born in the UK, right? He was. Yeah. 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 And then you guys moved back and I just remember you brought Kai out to the Creek. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he was probably like what, one and a half or close mm-hmm. to two or something. Close and, to two. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is different now. Like our friends are, you know, I think we were with Brian and Emily who later had a son of their own and yep. and camp with them in the creek and it's it is it is a different kind of special when you and you have a kid out there but the logistical challenges i remember you said he like threw up beats and you thought he was dying on the drive or something yeah
2: (laughs) yeah we were coming out of gunnison we were headed towards montrose and um we got in this dead spot and i hear this (laughs) behind me and and you know of note is that this is the first time that my wife has trusted me <laughs> right. to take our kid away <laughs> on my own, and I'm um, taking him to Indian Creek where there's not hospitals, there's nothing. I think there, it was
0: like in winter too. It was like it was, early March or it late it was, February. Yeah, it yeah. was actually
2: very cold. Yeah, and uh, there was a plow driver um, who I thought I'm going to pull next to that plow driver, and they probably have a radio. They can call out if I need here, and I pull over really fast, and I jump out of the car, and I'm like, "All right, I'm going to airway breathing." Circulation. I got this, you know, I'm a woofer. I'm going to take care of this kid. Um, open up the door, look at him. He's got like red stuff everywhere. Just like all over his face, all over his, his, uh, shirt. And I'm like, man, this kid's like dying. Like this is terrible. And then I smell it and I'm like, those are beets. Those are really gross smelling beets. <laughs> this kid is just from, from the really windy road that we're on, just thrown up his, his dinner that I gave him. Um, And, uh, I didn't have the stomach pun intended to call his mom and, uh, tell her because I didn't want her to tell me to come home. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so we just kept going and, uh, cleaned him up. Fortunately, we had a friend in, um, in a close town and just dropped him right into the tub and was like, thank you so much for this space and (laughs) for helping me to, and, and that was actually the whole, the whole, uh, journey out there was all about our community helping me out. And, uh, you know, I think if, for anyone listening that has to climb with somebody with a kid, uh, know that they're they're on the struggle bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more you can help them, like if you help carry a rope or you, uh, you know, play with the kid for 10 minutes while they do a lead or, you know, anything like that, you have no idea how much that means to them. And they might not even be able to tell you, uh, but it is, it is the world to them. And, uh, you know, thank you for doing it. <laughs>
0: And that's, I mean, that's the climbing world now too. I just, you just see so many more kids out with their parents and then they become the climbers. And um, during that time period, you also move back to where we are right now. Um, For me, this is like the nostalgia center of the universe. Gunnison, especially this Western campus, maybe it's more nostalgic for me because I come here once or twice a year and all these memories come flooding back. Like we're looking at Boric uh, Business Building, um, which was built after we graduated. Beautiful building. And you are now the director of an MBA program, which is just so full circle. It's, it's just crazy. You couldn't make it up. And I also remember sitting outside of BORIC when I, I worked here for three years during that last economic recession, and they cut my job, and I kind of was forced my hand to leave. But I remember sitting outside that building telling the president I was leaving. Tell me a little bit about the MBA and how you ended up um, in this position and and what your kind of your day-to-day looks like and it just seems like you have a a really cool job like
2: I do yeah Yeah. I I love my job and um, from from dirtbag living in the back of my car to MBA director is not a normal story I don't think Um, but that said it is a little bit normal because the MBA program is the first outdoor industry specific masters of business administration program in the nation really And it's all around outdoor industry. So uh, a lot of the values that I had as a younger person and as a dirtbag, inclusivity, public lands, sustainability, all of these things are still part of our program. They're in our mission, vision, values. And uh, all of our classes are based around the outdoor industry. So you're not learning about Pepsi, you're learning about Patagonia. Mm -hmm. We have uh, classes specific to sustainability, so sustainable uh, accounting, sustainable finance, we're thinking about how do we use money for good, right? And how do we grow an industry that is mission-based, that uh, has the promise of living your values while also moving up in the world and being able to have a family, being able to have a house and all those things that you might want. So if it was a normal MBA, they wouldn't have hired me, no doubt. It's because of my experiences like the ones that we've been talking about uh, writing for the zine going to OR with you after a retailer show with you and and hustling um, working in these outdoor industry spaces uh, that that's the reason why I was hired for this job and I think that's also a way that I connect with my students is I always start off by telling them that I used to live in a tent right above campus and uh, and in my truck out at Hartman's and they can relate to that you know a lot of them yeah. that's where a lot of us started in this industry um, and I think You know, from humble beginnings, you can grow um, and you can get to where you want to go if you just hustle a little bit.
0: I know you your students do love you because I feel like there's there's certain teachers that I'll I'll meet a student out at the creek or something and your name will come up and they'll just kind of light up. And you can tell certain professors are, are just more popular than other ones. Um, and I feel like you're just one where your name comes up and people's faces just kind of light up. So um, I don't know if you you knew that about yourself, but um, I think that's it's so cool to to see that reaction out of a student, and it's so cool to see your impact um, come full circle. Um, we have uh, we have a new segment that we've been working on. Um, it's called Campfire Questions. Oh, okay. Um, we started this off with uh, Tommy Caldwell, who actually. Tommy's been very generous with Squeak, actually. Um, he, he did a buddy blurb on the back. He did a buddy blurb. Um, and his, he's, he's read it to his kids. and Yeah, yeah. he's presented here at Western as well. And yep. this is, so this is called Campfire Questions. Question one, crack or tufa?
2: Oh, man. Uh, well, right now I'm, I'm a little bit injured, so I'd definitely go tufa. Um, I think I'd go tufa anyways just because tufas are rare in my world. Um, yes, we've, we've been able to climb some Tufas like in El Salto, Mexico. And, and I'm talking to Luke right now. He and I have climbed them, you know, they're, they're just so fun. It's so, it's so fun to do something different. So I'm, I'm somebody that likes different climbing all the time. So I'll, I guess I'll go Tufa.
0: Yeah. And we might have to do another whole podcast episode of just our climbs together. Cause now you're bringing up Mexico. We have like, we could do an hour of stories from Mexico, you know, um, but Mark Grunin developed this cave called the Cumbia Cave near El Salto. Yeah. Awesome and I have a photo of you, like, hugging a stalactite. I think it was, like, the day after Mark's wedding. And uh, so we are probably, like, a little bit hungover, you know? A little. A little bit. And uh, you're, like, hugging the stalactite, and the stalactite is, like, three times the size of you. And it's just, like, a, I love that photo. Yeah. yeah. Thank God that thing didn't break. Mark Grunin, uh, or anyone who develops especially tufa roots, like, because you don't want to take off, a tufa but then sometimes i'm sure some of them are so delicate that you kind of do have to hammer them off but yeah kind of an obscure area if you ever get the well. chance to get the listeners are in el salto or going there find mark grunden and get the beta on cumbia cave or find hoel <laughs> or, or somebody like that stick clip yes or no
2: uh we have a long story and a long <laughs> long uh, relationship with stick clips uh, in my younger years absolutely no as i get older it's it's a potential yes
0: but the question is (laughs) would you use the stick clip yes or no yes thank you (laughs) favorite climbing area in the world
2: Uh, Frey, argentina
0: wow wow
2: and the black canyon's very close um interesting i i like adventure you know and i like to be out um in the middle of nowhere uh with without people um maybe maybe a partner and uh Always a partner, actually. I don't know yeah. why I said that. Always a partner. <laughs> yeah. Partners are the best part of the climbing for me. Me too. Um, and Frey is a neat area in Argentina outside of uh, Bariloche that um, you have to backpack in. You've got to set up camp. And you do uh, granite towers from there. And there's these beautiful con- condors that are out there that are massive animals. They look prehistoric. They're they're like six foot Wingspans. Wow! And uh, you're just out there on the rock with without a care. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm gonna have to do that because it's it's kind of alpiney.
0: I love that. I love that. Where do you think Squeak's gonna climb next?
2: Where is Squeak going next for climbing? Um, you know, I think a place that could use a lot of love is Moab area. I agree. Um, and uh, especially with that environmental message and to young people and to everybody it's an area that we're kind of loving to, to death, unfortunately. And so, yeah, I think I think Squeak, squeak would go to Moab next.
0: The next campfire question is kind of a big one. I'm saving it for last. What is your, the biggest failure you've ever had that you've learned the most from? So I've, I've failed on a lot of
2: climbs and uh, none of that is of that much significance. You know, I didn't die. I didn't um, get seriously injured or anything. So those have helped me to get better. And some of the biggest failures I feel like are not getting jobs or like really messing up in my career. And it's pretty analogous to climbing. It's, it's times when, you know, they're, sometimes they're friends that are sitting across the table from you telling you you're not going to get that job. That hurts and, you know, not sending your project hurts. And all of those things help you to just get better. So what I learned from them is that you got to have some grit out there. You know, you got to, um, you got to brush things off. You got to laugh about them. Um, I think a sense of humor is, is a trait that is, uh, in low, low supply these days and, and yet needed more than ever. So yeah, I think I've had a lot of failures and there's too many to to mention, (laughs) but they've all helped me to get better.
0: I love that though, because I think watching other, sometimes watching new climbers adjust to failure is a, we're so accustomed to it and I almost enjoy failure, you know, yeah that's that's a great answer though (laughs) I think about this
2: time when a, a buddy named Sonny who is now he's a Buddhist and Sonny's I was getting so angry I was in college you know I was the angry vegetarian and I was just getting so angry about falling off of this crack and wherever and he looked up to me and he said Scott you can't change what's just happened but you can affect what's about to happen and he helped me just put all of that away and move forward And, uh, yeah, thanks, Sonny.
0: Great advice. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott. That was uh, truly a pleasure, and I'm grateful for all your contributions and um, couldn't have done this whole thing without you and wouldn't have wanted to. Uh,
2: Likewise. Uh, Lifelong friend.
0: Much love, brother. Cheers. Right. That was our conversation with Scott Borden. We got a special little addition at the end here. Scott wrote this story called The Man Who Tried to Stick Clip El Cap. And it's seriously, I think, the weirdest story I've ever been submitted. And um, we never actually published it in the Climbing Zine, although Kate Ott did a piece of art to go along with it that we published in the Climbing Zine book. And it was just so weird. Um, But it is on the website. And We initially thought we were going to release it on April Fool's Day, but we didn't really quite get our act together, had a presentation there, and Chad Rich, our producer, was busy with a lot of other things as well, so we didn't quite get that up, um, but I wanted to share it at the end here. It's super weird. It's satire. Don't take it seriously, um, but it's just it was just a fun, a fun story that he wrote, and Scott, as you heard in that episode, has quite the sense of humor, and he spent a bunch of time over in the UK climbing as well. So I hope you enjoy this. The man who tried to stick clip El Capitan. Music from this episode is from Devin Dabney. And our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich, signing off. Flowers are blooming here in Durango, Colorado. It's spring. Peace.
2: A new sport is captivating the nation smashing climbing records and overcoming the issue of being old and washed up. This is the ballad of Bobby Burns, a hero to many, a wimp to others. Once a fine climber, Bobby was seen in photos being passed by Honold, the Huber brothers, Stanley, Potter, and the other legends on El Capitan. But as he grew older, his ability to get up climbs was stunted and he needed to turn to a darker calling. As we all know, necessity is the mother of all innovation. With a new form of climbing called freedom freeing, Bobby reinvented himself, giving hope to climbers everywhere. It all started back in England of all places. England, the land of no bolts, sketchy pins that can't be replaced out of respect for dead white Englishmen, and an ethic of break your legs or send, you bloody wanker. A place where you literally climb to the pub situated at the top of the crag and get blackout drunk with your mates to forget the trauma of not dying on some crumbly old sea cliff. Old school ethics? Yeah. They were invented here mate this historic irony is what makes bobby's time in england so interesting he first learned this new craft from a young climber named rich on this particular day rich and bobby headed to the one and only locally bolted venue on english crumbling sea cliff to prove that this was not the day they would die upon arriving rich promptly revealed his stick clip now bobby had given up on stick clips years ago and they reluctantly accepted them back into his life it happened on a trip to Mexico, where Bobby had publicly shamed the editor of the climbing zine, Luke Mihal, for using one. In a glorious display of instant karma on the next climb, Bobby Burns fell 15 feet off the start to a route, rolled down a long hill, and Luke, with all the kindness in his heart, didn't say a single word. Instead, Bobby just put his head down, borrowed Luke's stick clip, and allowed himself the humility to use one of those wonderful tools from then on. With this new respect, Bobby now looked upon stick clipping with fondness. As Rich prepared to go up the first route, he informed Bobby, in a thick British accent, that he would be sticking it. Like sending it first try, Bobby asked, as you do when you don't really speak the same language but you're meant to. No, I'll be using my stick clip, he asserted. He promptly got to the first bolt. And then, with Bobby's help tensioning the rope, he pulled himself up, Batman style, stick clip attached to his side, stick-clipping each preceding bolt and repeating this process until he reached the top. He would set a top rope to practice the route prior to a real go. It was mind-blowing and the start to what would be Bobby's personal revolution. They call it French freeing when you pull on gear to move upward, but the French don't deserve the honor of that phrase. Eat some frogs, you arrogant spandexers, is what Bobby likes to say. Clipping each piece and pulling on it for tension or to advance upward is an age-old practice by aid climbers speed climbers, and the lethargic. Bobby knew, Bobby knew French freeing well from his days as all three, but the term had never felt right. Perhaps if you're old, you remember when President George W. Bush took office and 9-11 occurred. The W. administration renamed French fries at the White House cafeteria, calling them Freedom Fries to diss the unappreciative French government for not backing the invasion into Iraq. Well, Bobby, too, refused to let the French have this magnificent strategy. And in true American fashion, Bobby Burns would go big or go home. Now, he has taken this new sport to the highest heights, well beyond just clipping one bolt at a time. Welcome to the future of climbing, where we now clip the top of the climb in one go and call it freedom freeing. Bobby believed the skill, concentration, and sheer insanity involved in performing such an act ensures that this sport will continue to be growing within our wonderful climbing community. Bobby's goal was to cement his legacy in the history books by doing something impossible. He would clip the top of the nose in Yosemite National Park on El Capitan. Bobby would outdo all other records, shattering them in the name of freedom. Those records are in 1958, Warren Harding and team had the first ascent in 47 days. In 1975, John Long, Jim Bridgewell, and Bill Westbay had the first ascent in one day. In 1993, Lynn Hill had the first free ascent. In 2017, Alex Honnold free soloed El Capitan. In 2018, Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell set a new speed record. In 2022, Bobby Burns would have the first freedom-free ascent, sub 20 minutes. His revolution started at the local crag with 40-foot bolted boulders. He taped three stick clips together and got the anchor in his third try. He was a natural, so he moved on to larger walls, which would require him to get more creative with additional height. Bobby started adding reinforcement and side poles to what would become a type of long triangular monster It was going well, and he was able to clip the top of a three-pitch climb. The locals looked impressed. They knew something important was happening. A new sport was taking shape, and he was on top of the world, living the free life. That is, until it all came crumbling down. The sound of fiberglass splintering made his ears ring, and red spewed from Bobby's hands at a rapid pace. This is a 911 emergency, he muttered into a blood-soaked phone. What seems to be the problem? Uh, I just had a thousand-foot pole shatter in my hands, and I'm bleeding really badly. What? replied 911. Bobby, lightheaded at this point, sat down inside. Ambulance for one? The ambulance came an hour after the call, and Bobby had nearly gone into irreversible shock. A close call, but every hero has a moment of self-doubt. Every phoenix must rise from the ashes. That was a low point, and he needed to get back on the horse. There was too much on the line. This was revolutionizing the sport and rebuilding his identity. He couldn't just throw in the blood-soaked towel now. It took rehabbing in a hospital for months. But with hard work, there were other big first freedom-free ascents. The top of Red River Gorge. Joshua Tree's Acid Crack. Acadia National Park's Adir by the Sea. The Gunk's High Exposure. Arches National Park. Devil's Tower. Zion National Park. Leavenworth, and the Black Canyon. It was all happening so fast, and he would need an improved tool for the 3,300-foot-high El Capitan. But where could he turn to solve this impossible puzzle? It came in a reinforced carbon fiber pole four feet in diameter, the amount that he could just fit his arms around, side poles of the same width attached to his hips on a harness-like structure so he could bear the weight. Over 3,000 feet long, it was just the right length to reach the last anchor on the nose. Bobby had to bring the thing into the park in stages and assemble it over the course of two days. Hydraulic lifts allowed for extension pieces inside each other to shoot out towards the heavens. It costs a fortune. But as we all know, freedom isn't free. He set up at the base with no spotters as that would be too dangerous. Strapping it to himself, the contraption started growing and growing with the sound of the hydraulic lift ringing into the ether. Creaking and crawling upwards, it passed the boot flake, then El Capitan Tower, the great roof, the pancake flake, changing corners. Oh my goodness, it was happening. Bobby's dreams were being realized right before his eyes. I want this, I need this, I'm going to be something again, and America and every old climber is coming with me, he kept repeating. Bobby took a deep breath and heard, Sirens? Loud noises and flashing lights were all around. The stick clip police had arrived. If you can't clip the first bolt, then don't get on the route, they shouted. Only wimps use stick clips, they taunted. Here, I'll clip it for you, they mocked. All of Bobby's insecurities were rushing back. Maybe he couldn't do it. Maybe he was just old and washed up. With the distraction, Bobby lost control of the device. It fell like a massive sequoia, causing a minor earthquake and shattering into millions of pieces. The stick clip police cheered. Bobby cried. It was the last the world ever heard of Bobby Burns. However, I understand he is still out there somewhere, looking to regain his confidence and reinvent the sport. They say on special Sundays, his clipping can be still heard on the top of long roots throughout our great country. And not all was lost. This is to say the first freedom-free ascent of El Capitan is still out there to the brave old-timer or wimp willing to sacrifice it all in the name of freedom. Just remember, if you can't send or are too scared, you can always enjoy a good freedom-free ascent. Some may call it cheating. Others call it lazy. Bobby Burns called it freedom. Godspeed, my friends. May you, too, feel the exhilaration of trying to clip it on El Capitan
0: or your local crag.